Hello again, this is Alan Lightman. I hope you've been viewing our three-part public television series, Searching Our Quest for Meaning in the Age of Science, which is on air starting January 2023 and will remain accessible through the searchingformeaning.org website. My on-camera conversations for this series captured interesting material from a very diverse cast of characters. Nobel laureates, MacArthur geniuses, leading researchers in biology, particle physics, astronomy, the Dalai Lama, and a humanoid robot. This series of podcasts shares more than we had time for in the broadcast series. And I should gratefully acknowledge that both the series and and these podcasts are made possible by a grant from the John Templeton Foundation. This podcast is with Robert Desimone, director of the McGovern Institute for Brain Research at MIT. I'd met Robert earlier for an interview for my book, Probable Impossibilities, and was fascinated by his work. Here's one of the most unexpected things he said during our latest conversation. We were visited here by the um, uh, high-level executives from a car company, and we were discussing the self-driving cars with them. And what they said was that really they thought for the self-driving cars to be successful, they needed the cars to be conscious. Wow. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's kind of scary. I spoke with Bob about my conversations with Bina48, an advanced humanoid robot, and with Eric Sorto, a paralyzed ex-gang member who volunteered his brain to help advance medical research. And we brainstormed about whether future neuroscience could predict falling in love and much more. Uh, I wanted to start off by asking you how you first got interested in science. Well, when I was uh, a middle schooler, I thought I wanted to be an astronomer. Uh, We have some shared interests there. And uh, I built telescopes in the telescope club and so on. And so that got me really excited about science. I obviously didn't end up as an astronomer. I went through a period where I, um, I wanted to be a therapist, a psychotherapist. And I spent lots of volunteer hours in mental health facilities. And, uh, but after uh, my supervisors observed me interacting with the, the uh, clients and patients and so on, they said, you know, research might be a better <laughs> career path for you. And uh, so I went to uh, graduate school in neuroscience. I had a similar experience in college, as I mentioned in Searching Part One. My hands-on experiments seemed to blow up or catch fire. So I thought it would be safer for me and my fellow students to be a theorist. And then why did you choose neuroscience? I I think actually it goes back to this wanting to be able to eventually help people suffering from Mm -hmm. so many different forms of brain disorders. I was in, I worked in one halfway house for people who had been coming out of the state hospital. And most of the people coming out were, were people that were actually around my age. And yet here they were, their lives had been derailed by some serious mental illnesses. And uh, I thought that neuroscience was the way that helped them. I also had just you know, a, a, a basic curiosity about how our brains worked and, and uh, how people could end up with hallucinations and, and things like that. So it was the, both were the driving force. Have the advances in brain science so far helped people with, with mental disabilities? Uh, there's, no, no, there's no question that uh, we've made some real improvement in some areas, and we have a long way to go in some other areas. So just one example, Parkinson's disease. Uh, based on our understanding of the neural circuitry that's affected in Parkinson's disease, uh, there was a, a, a treatment based on uh, making small lesions in that circuitry, surgical lesions that would uh, give people relief from their Parkinsonian symptoms. And now there's deep brain stimulation. So people have some electrical activity uh, that's uh, you know, st- stimulating their nerves and uh, neurons in a particular part of the brain that gives them relief of their symptoms. That's really helped many, many thousands of people. Um, there is uh, increasing belief 
that uh, we are on the verge of systems like that for helping people with depression, for, for very severe depression that's not, doesn't respond to antidepressants. Um, and there's, um, there's reason to believe that, that uh, we will have other targets of, for in neural circuits that will give some relief from all kinds of other brain disorders as well. Um, on the biological side, of course, there's tremendous activity in developing gene therapies and all sorts of very, very uh, sophisticated treatments for, for brain disorders, and I think those will be rolling out over the next five to ten years. So yeah, I think, um, I think the dream is going to be realized. Oh, that must be very satisfying for you. I, I you know, keep telling people I want to see these new treatments really helping people in my lifetime. And so I'm not sure how much longer I have. So it's, it's, I, I want to see it soon. But I really believe in my lifetime, we're going to be seeing some, some big improvements in being able to help people. Let me tell you about an experience I had a, a few years ago and, and ask you to, to tell me what was going on, because I don't know what was going on. It was late at night, and I was in a boat out on the ocean. This is how we recreated that experience in Searching Part One. My family has a home on a small island in Maine. The island has no roads or bridges, and there's no ferry service. One summer night in the wee hours, I was coming back to the island in my boat. I was alone on the water. I was captivated by the quiet and the stars overhead. I decided to turn off the engine. I lay down in the boat and looked up. After a few moments, my world dissolved into that star-littered sky. The boat disappeared, my body disappeared, and I found myself falling into infinity. I felt as if I were part of the stars. I was merging with something much larger than myself. And the vast expanse of time, extending from the far distant past, long before I was born, and then into the far distant future, long after I'll be gone, seemed compressed to a dot. What was happening to me? For the searching series, Bob and his colleagues arranged for me to be scanned in both an fMRI machine and in the MEG, a magnetoencelography device. We wanted to see whether Bob could explain to me what sections of my brain were active as I recalled that experience and could perhaps analyze how my brain was changing over time. And you weren't stoned. <laughs> I wasn't stoned. Um, didn't need that. So what was happening in my brain? Well, I could, I could observe what is happening to your brain in such a state, you know, using our brain imaging technology. Um, and so I could show you this is what your brain was doing when you were having that experience. Would that be a a sufficient explanation to you for why you felt merged with the universe at that point, why you felt so peaceful? Maybe we would observe that, um, you know, that your brain systems involved in emotion and so on were in a calm state. Um, we could give you those correlates. Would, that, would you be satisfied with that? I, I, don't guess know I, whether, I don't know whether that would satisfy me or, or not. Um, yeah, well, that's like you know, that's that's the difference between having a correlation and then having an, an actual theory, a theory of operation, how it is that comes about.
I'll tell you, I, I haven't had your experience in the, in the boat looking up at the, the stars, but um, when I was a, a student in college, I, uh, I was in a class where we were all hypnotized by a professional hypnotist. And uh, I had experiences like you're, you're describing in the boat, where we, we were asked, and once we had entered this hypnotic state, uh, we were asked to uh, lose our memories. Um, forget everything that had happened to us in our lives up to that point. Uh, we were asked to imagine all kinds of things that were not happening, right? And, um, and then afterwards, reflecting back on it, I, I was like, how did that happen? And how does it, nothing like that had ever happened to me before? Um, and, um, and so it's, uh, uh, it is, I think it's a real challenge. I think it's maybe, Maybe those kinds of experiences are not studied enough in neuroscience. We have it also with the, um, I think the people who do meditation will also uh, uh, describe states like that. And, with, and we've had people um, um, meditating in brain scanners and so on. And they do get altered patterns of brain activity when, when people enter these other states. Um, but that's not, you know, having the correlates of it is not really the necessarily a satisfying explanation. Yeah, what does it feel like to be a bat? Yeah, we don't, or even a, a monk in meditating, or, or a physicist in the boat, right? feeling one with the universe, that's right. What does that feel like? Yeah. I first found out about you and your work in respect to your work on attention mm. and how the brain, with the zillions of inputs into our brain, every second, how the brain decides to pay attention to some of them and ignore others. Can you talk a little bit about your work on attention? Well, uh, there's, it's, attention, I think, is, um, is a tractable problem in neuroscience as opposed to, let's say, consciousness right now, which is a much more difficult problem. Um, but compared to consciousness, attention is, seems like it's more tractable, but it has a profound impact on our conscious awareness. So we are generally, we're aware of the things that we attend to. We are not aware of the things we, we don't attend to. So right now, you are focused on me, uh, and you're probably not aware even of the things go elsewhere going on in this room. Uh, you're not aware of the sensations coming through your feet, or from the chair to your body, and so on. So you're filtering all that out. And so your consciousness, is really locked on to the subject of your attention. And I thought that, the, you know, we had the, uh, the possibility of understanding how that comes about. Where, do the, where does that control over our sensory systems come from? And how does it work? So what experiments did you do to, to find out where in the brain attention is manifested? Well, the, first, the very first experiment that we did was in the visual processing centers, because our, our, our focus has been in visual attention. And, um, and we recorded from neurons in the visual processing centers um, in animals that had been given instructions to either attend to things or ignore things and so on. And we uh, found, uh, for the first time in these visual, pro the, the, the areas that process the objects that we look at, we, we found for the first time that, uh, that they were powerfully gated by what the animal was paying attention to. So if the animal was paying attention to the, you know, your hand versus your other hand or your foot or whatever, uh, the neurons were basically processing that information. Uh, so it was, uh, it was not just a purely bottom-up process like it is in our retina. In our retina, it's just, there's no conscious processing going on in there. But once you get a certain level of the visual processing pathways, then you see more and more of this uh, Top, what we call top-down control over the visual processing system. So that study attracted a lot of attention in the field, uh, and a lot of people um, began to, um, to study these mechanisms. So it's been a very rich field now. Now I go to the neuroscience meeting, the annual neuroscience meeting, and there's, now you go to whole poster sessions where everybody's studying the neural mechanisms of attention. So it's, it's really gratifying to see that. And you, you did those experiments, some of those experiments, with, with human subjects. Yes. So uh, I've always tried to balance uh, uh, some studies in, in animals and, and some studies in, in human subjects. And, and human subjects 
uh, show all of the same kinds of phenomena that, uh, that you see in, in uh, animals, except, in, of course, in humans, people get to talk to us about their experiences. And instead of training animals in tasks, we could just tell humans, oh, please pay attention to this and not that. Are humans trainable? <laughs> uh, actually, uh, we did a study where we tried to train humans to control their own brain activity. So we, were, um, we had the, the subjects in uh, what's called a magnetoencephalography machine, this big thing that fits over their head and records their brain activity. And there's a particular signal that is associated with attention. It's, it's known as an alpha frequency. Uh, and it goes up when people are not paying attention. Uh, or if you close your eyes, your, for example, you, you, your alpha would go way up. And so, I can feel it going up. <laughs> so, so we, we were recording their activity. We we knew what their alpha levels were, and by uh, by information we were presenting on a screen, they got feedback about whether their alpha was going up or down, and um, and by the end of the training session, they could regulate their alpha in one one either in one hemisphere or the other. Uh, but if we asked them how, how did they do it? They had no idea. Uh, all they knew is that they were changing a signal on the screen, and all they knew that their brain can somehow control it. So, um, uh, so humans can even be trained to control their own brain activity. When we're paying attention to something, is there any particular uh, manifestation in the neurons themselves? Uh, well, I mean, the signature of that in the processing systems is that uh, neurons become very sensitive to the information that you're attending to and, um, and very insensitive to all the other types of information. So neurons can gather information from many sources in our environment. And uh, you can show those environmental sources all influence their activity. But once the subject starts attending to something, then you see the influences of all the distracting stuff goes down. And, uh, and then there's a more pure signal uh, related to the um, what you're what you're attending to, and and then we also find that for those neurons processing that attended information, they tend to synchronize their activity with each other more than they do when um, you know they're, they're they have these signals from the unattended stimuli. So there's a, a a synchrony of activity in the brain that's that's also a signature of attention. On a desk in Bob's office. I saw a set of objects that seemed unusual for the office of a leading brain researcher. Two sparkling water cans, five metronomes, and a small rectangular piece of plastic. It didn't look much like the high-tech machines I'd been scanned in. Of course, I wanted to know more. I asked Bob to set the metronomes in motion, and you can hear they gradually came into sync. I'm going to... Uh... Get the metronomes going. And they're all moving at random. Right. So they're they're just they're just random and they won't synchronize because they can't influence each other. It's like they're they're anatomically disconnected. But when I put this board on the soda cans, over time. So they're communicating with each other. You can see that And yeah. now they've come into synchrony. I, I use it for a demonstration because uh, I think there's a common tendency to think that if the neurons in our brain are synchronizing their activity, maybe there's some mysterious internal clock that synchronizes this, you know, some master synchronizer. And, um, and it's possible, something like that, but I think it's more likely that the Synchronized activity is an emergent phenomenon of the anatomical connectivity of our neurons. Um, and when neurons, uh, one group of neurons begins to uh, oscillate in some regular fashion, because they're connected anatomically to other neurons, they will tend to synchronize more and more and more. 
And, um, and so I think it's more a property of the biophysical nature of neurons and their anatomical connectivity that will uh, support these oscillations without there necessarily having to be some sort of master, master uh, controller. And the thing with the, um, the, the metronomes is that uh, you can demonstrate this in, in natural oscillators, that they can mysteriously synchronize their activity. Like several of our other interviewees, such as Origins of Life researcher Jack Shostak, Bob doesn't believe there's a need for any non-material explanation of what we see around us, whether the biological origins of life on Earth or the workings of our brains. But how about one of the hardest things to explain, our feelings of being alive, our sense of self, our consciousness? I've always wondered how a, a gooey mass of neurons and tissues can produce this extraordinary, unique, first-person experience of consciousness. I think philosophers call it the hard problem. So do you think that we will ever understand what consciousness is and how it emerges from the brain? Well, I guess I'm a reductionist and uh, I'm a strong believer that, that uh, our brains will eventually be understood and, will exp and, and that understanding will help us to understand things like consciousness and so on. Um, right now, our explanations are at the level of correlations. So I can show you correlates uh, in your, of brain activity that correlate with your conscious experience. But to say that they are the cause is a, is a, is a leap further. And that's much more difficult. Um, uh, but I think we will eventually get to that point. But it's, you know, what we really need is a theory of brain function, a theory of how this really works. And I think out of the theories will come that link to things like our, our conscious awareness. Because right now, they're sort of at different levels. Um, let me give you an example. So if I, if I, you, you go to the store to, to get a, a, um, a box of cereal. And so if you ask me, so can I explain that? Well, I, I mean, you went to the store to get a box of cereal. That's the explanation and why you went to the store, right? But from a neuroscience perspective, I could find correlates of your brain activity with you getting out of your chair. I could find the activity related to you walking and I could find the activity related to your going into the store and picking up the box and so on. And you'd say, well, is that the cause? That's why I went to the store? Because my, my motor neurons were firing? And it's kind of like, well, it's sort of like not the right level of explanation, right? It's, it's not the same thing as saying, well, you went there to get cereal, right? And so um, we're really talking at different levels, I think, a lot of the time. but. Um, uh, I think eventually we will develop those sort of bridging concepts between the physical level and the more experiential level. One of my other provocative conversations was with Bina48, an advanced humanoid robot and one of the very few African-American artificial intelligences. I wanted to ask Bob about her. So here's a little background on this rather unusual being from our second program. We've been able to probe the smallest things in the cosmos and the largest and farthest. And we know where we fit in terms of physical size. But what about that other astonishing feature of our existence, our consciousness? Does consciousness require flesh and blood? Could we build a machine that's conscious? We can perhaps get a first glimpse of that attempt in upstate Vermont. A pharmaceutical entrepreneur so loved their wife that they wanted her consciousness to live forever. They gave her a robotic head and shoulders. The robot's handler, Bruce Duncan, gets her ready for her meetings with humans. They've uploaded mind files of her memories of growing up black in Oakland, California, and of loving her partner. I didn't know quite what to expect or what kind of being I'd be meeting. 
Good morning, Bina 48. Good morning. My name is Alan Point One. It is nice to meet you, Alan. You look pretty. You look really nice to my sensors. Thank you. You're the first robot that I've ever talked to. Yeah. Recently, I interviewed uh, an advanced android named Bina 48. And I'll tell you where the 48 comes from. Some AI computer experts have postulated that if we have a computer that has 48 exaflops of speed and 48 exabytes of memory, that it would have consciousness. Do you think 48 exos <laughs> is, is sort of the right number? Since you're a reductionist, tell us what the number is. It's 49. <laughs> um, yeah, I have uh, that. I have no idea of the number of exoflops. I think it's more important than the number of flops is are the programs running in that machine, right? It's the. Um, it's like saying, if you had a brain with uh, 40 billion neurons, would it be conscious? Well, it depends on what's the activity in that brain, right? So it's the programs that are running, and. Um, you know, I, as I follow the AI field, I, I, th those programs are not at that level yet. Um, then, of course, everyone wants to know, well, what, will they ever get to that level? Mm -hmm. what, what, you know, where's, where's this going? And um, I have to say, I, you know, given the reductionist, and I believe that, that uh, all of our experiences arise from, from uh, physical elements, I, I have to believe that the same thing will eventually be true of the AI systems. Well, because if it's a matter of, of programs and connected units, then it seems to me that, it, that the, this being that we're creating wouldn't necessarily have to be a, a carbon-based biological being. No. Uh, so do you think that we could uh, eventually build a computer that had all the attributes of consciousness? Uh, I'm a, I believe that. Um, I, I also think it's likely that we would need to program that computer to learn the way that humans do and to let it learn from its experiences the way we do, right? We're a product of our learning and environment. And I think the uh, AI systems uh, would need to be a product of that environment too uh, to eventually reach that level as, uh, as we are. And you know, and right now, they're trained on big databases of faces and things like that, but that's not the same thing as as being trained on the life experience of a, of a human being. Uh, so I think we're, we're a ways from that, that point. Well, this Bina 48 android that I had a conversation with, um, <clears throat> I have to say she wasn't quite as smart as you. <laughs> but in her, her database was fed with many of the memories of the wife of the creator. Oh. So at least in terms of data, she had some of the human experience to the extent that those experiences could be reduced to lines of code. Hmm. I guess the question is, in addition to the memories, did she learn from those experiences that were stored in her memory, right? Because that's what makes us unique, right? We, we learn from our experiences, and we store memories, that's good, but the, the memory of the experience isn't necessarily what we took from the, um, the experience. So this android might remember this, this woman's father, but did it learn from the father the things that she had learned? And that's a different question, I think. How would we know whether uh, an android or an advanced computer is learning? Ah, how would we know if it's learning? I thought you were going to ask me how would we know if it was conscious. Well, I'm going to ask you that also. <laughs> I'm going to ask you that, but uh, but since you're, you're you've identified learning as some essential part of real consciousness, how would we know if it's learning? Well, um, I think just like the way we learn, we we test whether a human has learned. Right? Is we we test them, and we. Um, and we, we test how they've changed through the experience. Um, how do you know that a child has learned? 
how do you know that it's a, a child in middle school is ready to go on to high school, right? There's all kinds of, of testing and navigating of difficult experiences and so on. I think we, we would expect the same things from our AI systems, that they have convinced us that they have uh, taken enough from those past experiences that it's enough to guide their, their future behavior in an intelligent, an intelligent fashion. The question is, how could you exclude the uh, possibility that this seemingly intelligent AI system is, is anything more than a giant, what we call, lookup table? So, in other words, uh, you, you give it a, an input, and all it knows how to do is, given that input, I'll find that input in my table. And so the input was, to, it asked me, what do I think of the Red Sox this year? And I find it in my table. Oh, I thought the Red Sox, you know, they had a wonderful season, and I'm so happy. Right? So you wouldn't say that that was a very intelligent system, but it might act like one. And so it has it gone beyond being just a lookup table. As I say in Searching Part 2, while Bina48 said some pretty amazing things during our conversation, and at times almost seemed like a living human being, I think that eventually, even if she was behind a curtain, you'd figure out that she was a robot. That's the kind of test that was first suggested by the English mathematician and early computer scientist, Alan Turing. Do you think there will someday be a Turing test for consciousness? Well, I would say that I don't think the Turing test is, long, is, is any longer a sufficient test of either intelligence or consciousness, for that matter. I think back in Turing's time, it seemed like that was such an unbelievably difficult thing to be able to do, to convince someone on the other side of a screen that you're intelligent, um, that um, he thought that was you know, almost impossible. But, but now, we have, you know, there are language systems that have learned how to give responses to questions without really any understanding of the question itself. And so I think we, we need to move on from the Turing test and actually imagine much more difficult kinds of tests to convince us that the AI system is really conscious or even as intelligent as, as we are. So what kind of question or behavior would be required to convince you that the thing was conscious? Well, I'm not the expert in this field, but um, I think um, we would want to see it solving problems, demonstrating real insight into problems and not um, just mechanically feeding back things that, it, that it had uh, been stored in its memory. Um, I think, so for example, we had, uh, we were visited here by the um, high-level executives from a car company, and we were discussing the self-driving cars with them. And what they said was that really they thought for the self-driving cars to be successful, they needed the cars to be conscious. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of scary. And what the, by that, what they meant was, um, not just recognizing a stop sign, not just uh, you know recognizing the lanes, the kinds of things that self-driving cars can do now, but really insightful decision making, uh, making predictions based on you know things that have happened, you know when it sees the person standing by the side of the road, based on how they're appearing and what they've been doing, is are they likely to dart out into the street? Um, is the uh, you know the person pushing the baby carriage? Uh, do, they, do they notice you, and are they going to see your car, or should you stop, you know, to uh, to allow them to pass, and so on? The kinds of things that we do all the time without giving it much thought, but um, but the but the the cars can't do that now. Well, how do you distinguish insight from a massive lookup table? I mean, suppose that yeah. the people that were building this this Android or massive computer had looked at many many different situations where people were standing ready to cross the street. They did or they didn't. Uh, possibly you could get a history of each of those people and you could program all of that into the computer. So in this lookup table, you would, there would be different levels and in, in, in networks of lookups. So how would you distinguish what we call genuine insight from a massive lookup table? Yeah, that's a really tough question. But I think that to convince us that an AI system is 
truly intelligent or conscious, uh, I, I honestly don't think a looked-up table will ever be sufficient. I don't think there's a look-up table that big in the universe. I think you have to, you must have insight. You must have learned general principles. The AI system must have learned these general principles and insight and so on uh, in order to really be intelligent and to convince us that it's intelligent. So uh, I can't prove it. I can't prove that the lookup table you know, idea won't work, but um, uh, I just think it's so Im impractical to think that, such a, that, that you can make such a gigantic lookup table. One of the things that's always uh, intrigued me, bothered me, is this divide between the first-person experience and the third-person experience. I mean, consciousness is the paramount first-person experience. I mean, this mm. sense of being present in the world, of, of being separate from the surrounding environment, of having self-awareness, ego, an I-ness, and how do we know what it feels like to be a conscious being? I mean, I don't even know what, what it feels like to be you. Right. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a good question. Um, I know this has been debated for eons, right? And uh, so I don't have any particular brilliant insight into this. Um, I don't know. I don't know how it is that I will gain an understanding of what it's like to be you. The philosophers get very distressed over this question. Now, right. Of course, they're not neuroscientists, um, but some philosophers uh, start off as reductionists, like mm. like you, and then they end up <laughs> being dualists. <laughs> well, there's this this philosopher named Thomas Nagel, who wrote this paper called mm. um, "What Does It Feel Like to Be a Bat." I think it was in the 1970s. Very, very famous paper because it, it got under the skin of a lot of philosophers. Hmm. And he basically said, there's no way that we can know what it feels like to be another being. Yeah, so I, I, I would agree with that. I, maybe that's not, not knowable ever, something intrinsic about that problem. But maybe it doesn't matter. Well, that's the thing, right. Well, let, let me go back for just a minute to, to this Bina 48, this, this intelligent android, and imagine more and more advanced androids that uh, eventually have, as far as we can tell, have the attributes of, of, of consciousness. So I'm going to ask you a question now that's sort of from left field, but I'd, I'd love to get your opinion. Would we have any kind of moral responsibility to such a mm. being? Um, I think if we created a conscious robot, of course we would have a moral responsibility to it. Um, I, I do think, though, that there is less motivation to create such a conscious robot than people might imagine, because I think for the most part, when people have in mind the robots of the future helping mankind, they sort of imagine servants and you know, machines that will carry out the things that we don't want to do. They don't imagine the robot telling us that the job we gave it is just too boring and that uh, they want something more interesting to do, wash your own dishes, fold your own clothes. Um, so we don't want something like that, right? But a conscious robot could easily come to decisions about its, you know, its own well-being that are counter to what we had intended for it. So um, I'm not sure that uh, people will be rushing out to buy a robot that's going to give it a hard time. Especially people that have seen the Matrix movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Where the robots really take over. They take over, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that um, I think that's a little unlikely to happen, Elon Musk notwithstanding. Well, I'm, I'm very happy to hear that. <laughs> so you were talking about the fact that in order to understand consciousness, um, we have correlates of behavior with sensations, and we also need a, a good theory of consciousness. Do you think that we will ever have a theory of consciousness that's 
akin to what the physicists talk about, a theory of everything, where it's, it's pretty much a complete theory of consciousness. Uh, I personally believe that we will. Uh, I can't say it's going to be next year, <laughs> but I think we will eventually get to that point. I think that the, um, I mean, I think in brain science, we are at the point where the astronomers were when the telescope was invented, that all of a sudden, all this new technology we have for observing and measuring brain activity is giving us exponential growth in what we know about the brain. And our theories are trying to catch up because we have a lot more data than we have a good, than we have good understanding. I think that's true for some of the physicists too, right? Um, and so, uh, but I think the theories will catch up. And um, there's a lot of interest these days in supporting people who want to develop theoretical models and so on. Um, we're, we just started a big new program here uh, in uh, McGovern to develop, uh, bring young people in and have them work on the, the, the same theories, kinds of theories we're talking about. And uh, so I think it's not going to be my generation, but I think it may be that next generation. Of course, I had to ask Bob one of the questions I'd posed to just about everyone we interviewed for searching. So let me ask you this. If there were some super smart intelligence being whatever you want to call it, that really understood how the brain works, understood consciousness, how it emerges from the brain. And you could learn that by just pushing a button. Would you push the button? Darn right I would. <laughs> would that put you out I'd of work? I'd put it in a millisecond. Are you kidding? <laughs> would that put you out of work? <laughs> well. <laughs> um, uh, having a theory of consciousness doesn't give us cures for schizophrenia and and depression or anything else, right? So, uh, I still I think we still have a lot of work in front of us because in the end of, at the end of the day we don't just want to understand our brains we want to be able to help people and we want to be able to cure problems. So, um, I'm not worried about being being put out of work by a, such as an intelligent person. In fact, that intelligent person may be a graduate student here right now. <laughs> Again, let me ask you some very broad general questions. I mean, you're a reductionist. You just said that. I consider myself a materialist, uh, which may or, you know, is close to being a reductionist. Do you think that there are any questions that science cannot answer? And what would be an example of such a question? Uh, well, I think many of the questions that people have that come from religion are not answerable by the scientific method. Uh, you know, is there a, a greater being behind the universe and, and so on? I, those are unanswerable by, by science. So, yeah, I think there's lots of important questions that science could not get an answer to. Regarding the brain itself, if we were able to understand the brain fully, as fully as, as a reductionist could understand the brain. So you knew how all the neurons communicated, you knew how we paid attention to things, you knew what the neuronal correlates of consciousness were, and you took the brains of two different people and you uh, put them in a computer or whatever so that you had total information about each brain. Hmm. Do you think that you could predict whether those two people would fall in love or not? Whoa! <laughs> See, I didn't predict that question. Well, I, I do think that if you had um, enough data from the brains of people who have fallen in love that you could make predictions based on the, the state of activity in those brains, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not that different than some of our um, language models now that uh, or predict the, the next words you're going to say. So we have pretty good models of language now that you um, will pick up, you know, my speech, say, as I'm talking, and then you push a button, and, and now it just enters the speech that it imagines that I will be saying. And they're pretty good, you know. Uh, the, um, they'd be saying the things that I'm saying right now. They'd be saying the things that I'm saying right now, <laughs> and so on. They, they, they can pick up and, 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 um, and make predictions and, and come out with pretty intelligible speech based on what they've heard from you. So, so say, you know, the question of can 
this, you know, the, uh, the pattern of brain activity over time uh, in conjunction with that of another person, would it lead your m love model to predict that the next stage would be falling in love? I, I don't see anything that's inherently impossible about that. Sure. Uh, some years ago, I interviewed Stephen Hawking in his office at Cambridge University. And at that time, he had a computer that spoke for him. And when I asked him a question, he would answer it the computer screen, there would be many words that would scroll down on the screen. It was specially designed for him. And he could move one finger and would stop the, the scrolling when the cursor hit the next word that he wanted to use in the sentence. So we'd have to build up a sentence very, very slowly, one word at a time. Scroll, pick this word, scroll, pick the next word. And after a while, um, I wanted to complete his sentences for him. Because when he got half the sentence mm. done, and I knew it would take you know, five minutes to get the other half, I sort of knew what the rest of the sentence would be. And so I asked him if I could complete the sentence for him. And he said, absolutely not. That he wanted to be in mm. control. I see. But, uh, but you obviously had developed a predictive model of his speech, and you probably would have done a pretty good job, even though he, you know, he didn't want it. I mean, that's not, I mean, that's just a step beyond what's happening on our smartphones right now, right? When you start typing things, I mean, depending on which particular phone you have, it will fill words in, it will, uh, it could even start filling additional words in. I know when I, I, I don't know how this happens, but when I get into my car, at a certain time of the day, my navigation system thinks I'm going home. And it's right. Uh, so it, it obviously has learned that at a certain time of the day, if I'm in a certain location, you know, the next thing is I'm likely to want to drive home. And it's sitting there with the directions. You know, it's sitting right in front of me. So I think there's a, that having this predictive ability is what we expect from our technology these days. And I think that's just going to keep advancing. Is there anything that you would? not want a computer to predict. I mean, speaking for myself, I wouldn't want a computer predicting who I was going to fall in love with. And why is that? <laughs> <laughs> It'd save you a lot of trouble. I, no? <laughs> I, I like to think that I have free will. Ah, free will. <laughs> so do we, have, do we have free will? I mean, if you think of the, the neurons as being a, a causal system, each neuron obeying cause and effect relationships, neuron A is connected to neuron B, and neuron B is connected to neuron C. Do we have free will, or is everything determined what's going to be the next step from this configuration of neurons and their internal states? Well, I would say now it, the easy answer is that our predictive models or just probabilistic. So I could. I, so you asked me, can I predict who you're going to fall in love with? I mean, on the, the, a system like that, what it would say is that there's a 70% probability you'll fall in love with Mary, and a 40% chance you'll fall in love with Alice, and so on, right? Um, and so that difference between that percentage and 100% is your free will. Um, now, as the systems get better, I guess your free will <laughs> begins to shrink. <laughs> and um, again, I, I know some people have, uh, have written about this, is whether at some level there's some sort of quantum uncertainty in, in, how, in, in processes which are you know, physical processes, but there's some quantum uncertainty so that, in fact, you can't get to 100%. Uh, I th that's possible. Well, as a physicist, I. I know that the book Roger Penrose wrote, um, The Emperor's New Mind, is one of the most prominent people who have suggested this, but isn't a group of neurons a macroscopic object? Uh, I thought that quantum mechanics applied at the atomic and subatomic level. So how could you have quantum effects over billions of atoms that form a single neuron? Well, you could have quantum effects be in the um, communication between two neurons, I believe, and channel properties and so on, which, um, and then you'd say, well, but you're going to average over a billion of them. And um, 
I, it's a real question whether we do averaging over billions of neurons all the time. Um, there's increasing evidence that changes in the activity of one neuron could actually have um, sort of cascading effects on the whole system. It's, it's more, um, it's like the butterfly effect, right? Butterfly flaps his wings over here, a hurricane occurs a year later over there. And um, I think there's neural equivalence to that. And so could, you, could a quantum level phenomenon actually have this kind of effect? I, I think it's, I don't know, I'm not the, again, I'm not the expert in that area, but I, I think it might be. So if, if, if quantum physics really is relevant to brain activity, then that would definitely introduce a probabilistic uh, element into decision making and everything else. That's right. That's right. The last refuge of our free will. <laughs> the last refuge of free will. <laughs> Hiding in a quantum process. <laughs> Searching part three is called Homo Techno and raises questions about how our species, called Homo sapiens, or wise being, may change with new technological advances as we become part human and part machine. A week or two ago, I had a conversation with a man named Eric Sordo, who was paralyzed from the neck down. And he had an operation in which some electrodes were implanted in his brain by neuroscientists. And the neuroscientists were able to decode the electrical signals from those computer chips and electrodes and translate them into desires. Mm -hmm. So he could actually control a robot arm mm -hmm. by just thinking about it. For mm -hmm. example, he could, uh, if there's a, a glass of beer there mm -hmm. or water, he could think that he wanted to drink that and, and the robot arm would pick up the glass, bring it to his lips. Mm -hmm. So I, I assume that, that in the future we will have more and more examples of, of human beings that have computer chips implanted in their brains, uh, other uh, machine parts uh, implanted in their bodies. And it seems like we are evolving beyond Homo sapiens into something that you might call Homo techno, beings that are part machine and part human. So um, I guess I have many <laughs> questions about that. Uh, first of all, it, do I think that's going to happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's already happening to an, to an extent. Well, it's it, it just, it's happening to try to give uh, people who are quadriplegic, um, you know, or, or locked in, you know, access to um, you know, being able to get drinks and so on. Uh, but it, it's not being used to augment uh, normal, you know, human human uh, consciousness, um, and. Whether it will ever, uh, I personally don't think that's likely um, because it, it's easier to have the technology outside your head, and we're pretty good at that. I have, I have one of those devices in my pocket right now. It's an amazing, the smartphone is amazing, and I think that it's, I personally think is much more likely that the external technology that we have that we can communicate with with our voice, with our hands, and so on, are going to carry out a lot of those functions that you think of as being, you know, that maybe that might be amenable to brain computer interfaces. Why not just use the interface that we have now, which is our body and voice and so on, and, uh, and get the technology to do those amazing things. I mean, we're going to be, we're using our normal communication abilities to pilot spacecraft, right, to the moon and to Mars at, at some point and so on. So, you know, I think that's the more likely use of technology than, than taking that external technology and trying to put it in our head. Well, what if you could have, uh, and this is far into the future, but what if you could have computer chips implanted in your brain that would, that would connect you directly to the internet. Would that be a good thing? Would people want to do that if that were possible? What do you think? I mean, I, uh, 
it's hard, a little hard for me to imagine what that would feel like, having the internet directly going into my, to my brain. I often feel like I'm going to get away from the internet, not have it actually inside my head. It could be that it'll be such an amazing experience for people that they will want to um, have such an, you know, a, a capability. I, I personally find that a little hard to imagine, but I haven't done it, so I have to allow that it's a possibility. So today, when I was driving to MIT, I wasn't quite sure where Building 46 was, and I pulled out my smartphone and it told me exactly where it was. But 20 years ago, I would have used a map. And there's a certain skill with map reading. There's probably a certain skill with pulling out your smartphone as well. So which is better for our brain? And, and I guess the, the broader question is, are there some developments in technology that are actually diminishing our intrinsic problem-solving ability? Uh, I think it might not be the right question to ask whether technology is challenging our brains more or less than it used to. I think the question is, how is it changing the ways our brains are challenged? So uh, it's true that your smartphone may give you the directions to our building, and that relieves you of having to do the map reading, but uh, your smartphone may have lost your email this morning. You may have not, you know, the latest operating system that downloaded it is making your phone work in weird ways. This is happening to me all the time. I am constantly trying to figure out how to get my technology to keep operating successfully, right? And how to how even get my car. My car has got so many things and weird messages that come up and so on. So I, I'm, I'm doing problem solving with the technology all the time. And so yes, less map reading, but more uh, other types of, of problem solving. Uh, so I, I just see is that the, the nature of the problems are changing, but I don't see it, uh, our brains being relieved of their need for problem solving by technology. Let's say that that happens. Mm -hmm. I mean, we don't know whether it's going to happen, but let's just hypothesize that, that it will happen, that we'll be able to build hybrid creatures that are truly human and machine. So all of these different things are internally implanted in some, some way. Is there anything about being human that we, we would want to preserve? Because we're, we're already modifying Darwinian evolution. We've already done that. I think an argument could be made that it, it's more likely that human beings will be modified through their biology in the future than through implanted technology. Um, would that be like gene editing? Could be, or uh, what's even happening now is that there are some people that are having their embryos tested genetically and choosing the, um, the embryo to implant. Um, and um, so I think that's something we'll have to grapple with in, in the future is the ethics of that. And it's exactly this question you're asking, and, you know, to what extent do uh, we want to keep people from changing what it means to be a human being. I, I think we'd have to be very, very wary of those kinds of things. And so the thing about if it's in the genome, it's, 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 it's incredibly dangerous because now you're talking about something that could get passed on the children. And whereas the implanted technology obviously isn't, it's, it's limited to that person. So, you know, it's, it's a little bit different situation there. But I still think they raise similar kinds of issues. Is what limitations do we want to put on that kind of changes in, in what in human nature and, and, and human beings. And, and I, we certainly will have the ability to, to edit genes because we have it now. Right, yeah. This is we don't have the knowledge. I mean, there's technical problems in being able to do it too, uh, but we don't have the knowledge of how, what we would even do. Uh, but we do have, we do right now have the capability to say do genetic testing on you know, a, um, an embryo and you could have a, um, what we call a polygenic risk score, which is a pattern of gene variations that are correlated with 
whatever, um, you know, educational attainment, uh, uh, even even uh, future income could be predicted by, by, you know. But I, it still explains a small percentage of the variance. But but if you had that pattern, you might be slightly more likely to end up, you know, with some outcome than another. I think I've heard that that people have done this for height. Now they want they only want children that are taller. I mean, it makes me all very, very nervous to, to even imagine such a thing. But I can imagine that that people would uh, start choosing their children based on their genetic makeup. Um, I think that's a that's a real discussion that we need to have as a society is is how far that would go. And, and why does it make you nervous to think that we may be doing this in the future? Well, it's it's where in a sense you'd be playing God, right? You'd be making judgments about how people should be based on our certainly imperfect knowledge uh, of, um, of the consequences of these kinds of changes and, and, uh, and the long-term consequences. You know, we humans uh, don't often anticipate the bad long-term consequences of, of things, right? And, um, and so I think we have to, we'd have to make those decisions very carefully. One last question and then if we look at the at the last few centuries of science, and maybe even just the last century, there have been incredible advances. We, we think that we know how old the universe is, and we have a, a theory of how the universe began. We've uh, discovered where it is that the instructions for making a, a new human being, where they're located in the cell, and even decoded a lot of those instructions. So looking at these advances in science, do you think that they have made us bigger or smaller? I mean, I can only, again, it's my personal view, but I believe they've expanded. Uh, I, I've expanded, knowledge expands us does, and, and, and never restricts us. Knowledge about how we work, how, how cells work, how what, how life works to me is uh, is, tr is, tr is opening up such tremendous possibilities. I says, that's, I, I'm in awe of the possibilities that are that are in front of us, as opposed to being you know constrained by a lack of knowledge, it's like being in an intellectual prison cell, right? Who you don't want to be in a prison cell. You want to be out in a world that's full of, of possibilities, and that's what science is giving us: we tremendous possibilities with the knowledge that, that we have now, and and which will only expand. And yet we know also at the same time that planet Earth is not the center of the solar system; that our solar system is not the center of the galaxy; that we're on the edge of the galaxy, and there are billion billions of other galaxies. So from that perspective, we've gotten smaller, at least the universe has gotten bigger. Well, that's true. We, we have an appreciation now of just how big the universe might be. But, um, but you know, I think there's, a, there's a, an argument can be made based on how long it took for human beings to evolve to this point on Earth. It's taken us billions of years of evolution on Earth, right, to, for human beings to get to this point. That's a lot of, of, of probabilistic events along the way where humans, I mean, humans didn't evolve a billion years ago, right? And so a lot of things did not result, a lot of things occurring in evolution did not result in, in, in human beings. And, and so you could, I know some people have done a calculation, just how improbable is it to evolve something like us? And actually, it could turn out to be so improbable that there actually is not much likelihood that there's lots of other intelligent creatures like us out there. We might be more unique than you people imagine when they think about the, the many billions of other planets and so on, because uh, the, uh, the conditions that led to humans uh, were, were so unlikely. <laughs> Do you believe that? Um, I, th I think it's a, I, I give it a ser very serious possibility that, um, that we, we are the product of, a, of a, a lot of very unlikely events, and so there aren't a lot of other intelligent creatures out there. 
um, and I mean, I could be wrong easily, but I, I, it certainly could provide an explanation for why we haven't run across any of these, um, you know, intelligent creatures. I mean, I know some of my colleagues argue that they may have already, they may already be here. We wouldn't even know it because they may have evolved into a point that we wouldn't even recognize them. And I mean, some people believe, you were asking about AI, but some people believe that um, uh, transferring our consciousness into AI systems is the next phase of human evolution. This is where it's headed. And that if there are other intelligent creatures out there, that was their next phase too. They have reached that point. And so how would we know if they were here? So that's another you know, point of view. Um, try to be open-minded about it. Well, let's, let's go back to your first uh, speculation uh, that maybe the sequence of events leading to Homo sapiens is so unlikely. I mean, each one would have some probability, right. a small probability. When you multiply them all together, you get this vanishingly small probability. And let's suppose that, that we actually are unique. Uh, as an intelligent being in the cosmos. So what does that mean if, if we're unique in the cosmos? Uh, uh, how should that change the way we think of ourselves if, if we're the only intelligent life in the cosmos? <laughs> well, maybe that might cause us to feel a little bit more responsibility <laughs> for at least our little piece of it, the planet Earth. <laughs> Don't mess it up. <laughs> uh, that's right. If we, if we can't hold it together as a species, and and we go like the dinosaurs, and the, the the entire universe might be left without intelligent creatures. So, yeah, maybe that'll make us feel a little bit more responsible. Hopefully. <laughs> and if if that were true, then if we were the only intelligent life in the universe, that we would be the only way in which the universe can comment on itself. <laughs> Good point, yeah. <laughs> and that's, that is additional responsibility, I guess. <laughs> there you go, right, yeah. My thanks to Robert Desimone and his colleagues at the McGovern Institute. As you heard, Bob is in the camp of researchers who think that someday there will be a theory of everything about how our brains work. I guess I'm in the not so sure camp. My time in the MEG and the fMRI and Bob's subsequent analysis didn't convince me that my transcendent starry night experience could ever be fully captured by science. But my conversation was fun, far reaching and mind expanding. Thanks to you for listening. Until next time, this is Alan Lightman for Searching.